Due to the age of these recorded messages, there are parts of low quality that are hard to understand. We have done our best to eliminate these and make it as clear as possible. And we will read part of chapter 2. The one, the literal phrase that is reiterated over and over again, and down so drove not out the Canaanites or uh, other inhabitants. And it's again and again in the first chapter. Then in chapter 2 and verse 6. Uh, this evening we come to the seventh book of the Bible. And <clears throat> we come to the second book of the historical section, of the historical books of the Old Testament. And I suppose we come to a book which is very rarely studied. I don't know how many, even of those who are older amongst you, have really studied the book of Judges. It seems that this book is relegated to the Sunday school, where most Christians seem to have heard the stories that are in it. It is a vivid book, vivid in every way. In some ways it's quite crude. It has, I suppose, stories that hardly any other part of the Bible has. Stories of brutality, of crudity, and of much else. Yet this book of Judges is one that is very, very important indeed. And in its own way is quite as important as the book of Joshua. You see, whilst we've come this evening to this book, we have got to deal with some rather unpleasant things. But I think we shall find that as we go through, we are going to learn something of the meaning of the Lord having included this in the world. Of course, you can see straight away that Judges has been written by someone else. All the other six books have had um, their own stamp. The first five have had a certain character about them, which we've noticed. Joshua has had a character. But this book is quite remarkable. I have been quite surprised myself when I find things like Samson saying that he was quit with the, Je with the Philistines. I never thought I would find that expression in the Bible. I never thought I'd find that the men of um, a certain place were left-handed and could fling stones with a hairbreadth and never miss. And uh, other little colloquial, almost slang phrases like, um, you have ploughed my heifer and therefore you sold my ritual, referring to his wife. So you see, um, this book, has got a, a stamp about it which immediately reveals that we're in new territory. And the other thing about Judges that I want you to note straight away is the almost complete contrast between it and Joshua. Joshua is a book, as you know, 
of victory, really. The element in the book of Joshua is overcoming, and they overcame. Whilst it now and again underlines the fact that certain parts of the tribe that they should have driven out were not driven out, it never, nevertheless, its real emphasis is an overcoming by the people of God and a procession of their inheritance. But Judges is a book full of the opposite. It is a book of declension. It's a book of defection. It's a book of division. It's a book of depravity. It's a book of every kind of disorder. It, from beginning to end, Joshua, ju Judges, is a book that deals with the seamy side of Christian experience. It is something which many people do not like. Just in the way that they love Ephesians, but don't like Corinthians, so they love Joshua, but don't love Judges. But you see, Corinthians, of necessity, is the other side of Ephesians. It is the earthly side the earthly aspect of the heavenly. And Judges is the earthly aspect of the other side, of overcoming. It reveals to us something of the flesh and blood warfare that we are really in if we mean business with the Lord. We find that it's not only, though, a book of um, disorder and um, division and so on, defeat, but it is also a book of repentance and deliverance. Continually through this book we're finding that the Lord's children are being brought back to the place of repentance and then the Lord delivers them. We almost grow weary as we read through the story of then the children of Israel sought the Lord and their cry came up unto the Lord and he raised up a saviour for them or a deliverer for them and so on. And then we get the story of their deliverance. Nevertheless, the book of Judges <coughs> is really a cycle. It's a very wearying cycle with very little real progress. If we include the book of Ruth in it, we find that we have real progress. If we leave out the book of Ruth, we have very little progress in this book. We find, for instance, that the people sin, they follow after foreign gods, they devote themselves to foreign gods, they intermarry, then they become slaves to some tribe or nation, then they cry unto the Lord, then the Lord raises them up a deliverer, then they are delivered, and then we find within a few years, it says they had 40 years rest or 40 years peace, and then suddenly the next then the children of Israel joined themselves again to other gods. And back we are again, there seems to be very little progress at all, until once again the Lord raises up another deliverer, and once again the people um, are delivered, and once again there's a period of rest. It is very interesting that the periods of rest are far longer than the periods of captivity. <coughs> so that really, in a sense, and we must remember this, the Holy Spirit is focusing attention upon the failure and not upon the going on. In this particular book, we find that it's not the far 
much greater amount of peace uh, that there was when they followed after the Lord, but the attention is focused continually upon the decline and declension and the coming back once again to uh, the same trouble. It's a cycle. And that's why many people find the book of Judges so wearing. Because you begin here, you go right the way round, and then you come right back to, the, to zero again. Then you start all over again, and you come back. And really, twelve times this happens. In all the lives of these twelve men, you've got this cycle. Twelve judges, and therefore you've got the twelve uh, cycles or revolutions again and again through this particular phase of history. It's therefore something very wearing. Then again, I want you to notice that even if there is all this failure, the thing that does shine out in the book of Judges is the faithfulness and the mercy of God. He never gives up his people. This should be a tremendous comfort to us. We can commit the most gross sin. We can get into a a place where we're far away from the Lord because of our doings, and yet the Lord refuses to give us the truth. He refuses. The Lord will remain in the hands of the Lord that which is destroyed. And then he'll raise our children, if necessary, from the stones. But the Lord will not forsake his inheritance. He will not forsake the land. He will not forsake his people. Everything can go. Everything can be perverted. Everything can be compromised. But the Lord refuses to forsake his people. This is the most wonderful message of the book of Judges. Far more wonderful than the For the other books have got that which would seem to speak of And then love as the basis 
the one thing that the Lord looks for more than anything is the heart that's really in love with him. And then the book of Joshua, which tells us how we must go over into the land to possess our inheritance. Not merely the Lord's inheritance in us, that is his habitation, but our inheritance in the Lord, that is the fullness of the Lord Jesus. These two things brought together. Now we find that this book is going to underline uh, for us this whole question of authority. In other words, Judges is a preparatory book. That is why so many of the early church fathers always felt that Ruth and Judges were part of the same work, really. And why, even now, most people do believe that Ruth and Judges were written by the same author. It is a preparatory movement, as it were, to prepare us for the king. These two books prepare and condition our hearts and minds for the whole concept of kingship. Judges, on the one side, is showing us by lack, by the very lack of authority, the need for kingship. Ruth is showing to us, on the other, how God, in the midst of the lack, is working to get to his end, which is to have when we have these two books together, they are a preparatory book um, in God's revelation of his self-concept. We have seen something of his house, we've seen something about his heritage. Now, we're going to, as I think many months ago, we're going to start chapters. The whole of the Bible is a progressive revelation. It begins with great seeds and then begins to develop details. We have begun with the great themes of the Bible. Authority is not so much, I think, a theme. It is something which is part of a great theme. In other words, God's habitation is a great theme. Authority is one of the elementary uh, characteristics of his habitation. So now we come really to see this in... Uh, the book of Judges. Now what about the authorship and the date of this book? Um, The first thing we might say is that no one knows the author. Uh, No name is given. No hint is given. And therefore there has been wild speculation. Many people even Right down by the point that this book was written uh, in the time of Josiah and his great reformation. And others believe that it was much earlier than that. It could not possibly be in the time of King Josiah. The rabbis always taught that Samuel was the author of Judges. And certainly it would seem that Judges, Ruth, and the first part of Samuel are linked to the continuous work. Um, You would have yourselves to read those three books and yourselves judge as to whether you feel that is so. But that is what Jewish 
the Jewish rabbis always claimed. It was the work of Samuel, as also was Ruth, and as also was the first part of the book of Samuel. It was written somewhere between uh, 1400 BC and 1000 BC. It covers roughly 300 years, in a, it, to be more precise, 330 years. But even that, we can say with real certainty that this book covers 300 years of this. From Joshua to Eli, that is quite a big span, from Joshua right over to Eli, to the coming of Samuel. This is why many believe, of course, that it is that who has written uh, as a preparatory movement to teach. And you must remember that Samuel was God's instrument for bringing in kingship. He undoubtedly was God's instrument. His whole life was bound up with the house of God and the throne. And I believe that Samuel saw the throne as a means to the house. His work, therefore, has been, as you can see, a preparatory uh, uh, work, and then the actual description of the coming monarchy. First the false one, and then the real one. It is interesting, as some scholars feel, that David may have, uh, in his very early days, first found, not only from his father, but who was, of course, by tradition, one of the weavers of the, of the veil in the tabernacle, but may, have well, may well have learnt from Samuel something of God's intention regarding his house. It may have been that Samuel was the one who instilled into David such a love for the house of God. Another thing that we ought to remember is that this book is not consecutive, necessarily. This is where many people make a big mistake in the book of Judges. They think that all these um, judges are consecutive. If we look at the map, we shall find that far from being consecutive, many of these judges may have been contemporary. Um, you see, for instance, Othniel um, judged in the south. Gideon judged in uh, central uh, uh, Palestine. Deborah and Barak were in the north. Um, then Jephthah was in Gilead, that is east of the Jordan. Um, and then you've got Samson in the, in the far south, here where the Philistines were. Uh, then you've got many others, some of them, Shamgar is the only one that we don't know where exactly he judged. But the point is simply this, that the judges may not necessarily have been consecutive. Some, there may have been quite a bit of over, overlapping, and in some cases they may have been judging uh, contemporaneously with each other. Um, so there's no real uh, difficulty in that. Another point that you ought to remember is this, that the last chapters of Judges, chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, are definitely not in their chronological order. They are an appendix to the story of the deliverances of God through these judges. The first 
is a story of Micah, the Ephraimite, and the second is the story of the wickedness of the men of Debeah. Ruth, we believe, is the third part of that appendix, which is the story of a couple who went from their native land, around Bethlehem and Sparta, over into Moab to live in Moab, and all that happened to them. All these three narratives at the end of the book of Judges can be dated at the beginning of this period. For instance, you will note that in the, the story of the terrible wickedness and depravity of the men of Gabeah, chapters that we read together in chapter 2 and chapter 3. He gives three reasons for this phase in Israel's history. The first is in chapter 2, 20 to 23, to visit the disobedience of the children of Israel. The second is in chapter 3 and verse 4, to prove the children of Israel as to what was really in their heart. And the third thing is in chapter 3 and verse 2, to teach them to war. These were the three reasons whoever he was, um, who wrote Judges, gave for this account. First, to uh, visit the disobedience of the children of Israel with punishment. Secondly, to prove the new generation to what was in their heart. And thirdly, to teach them to war. I think these three things teach us something about the Lord. Uh, the Lord is always, first of all, He always chastens those He loves. We never get away with anything. If as children of God, we do something, the penalty, we may not have to pay, but we will be chastened and will learn by our chastening. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. The Lord afflicts us and reigns us in. And that is why it's so tragic often to see um, children of God 
who are disobeying the Lord or leaving issues unsettled. Because the only way the Lord can win such is by change and by affliction. It shaves us of so much of our wavering and fastens us in a new way to the Lord. And the second thing is the Lord's always proving his people. I expect you've noticed that. He led them through the wilderness to prove them to find out what was in their hearts. He's always proving. I expect you've noticed how the Lord's always got things on probation. Always, 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 the Lord is proving. Proving, proving. He's He gives us He puts us into situations. He gives us trials all to prove us, to prove us. Just to find out what's in us, what grounds. This, I think, is something very interesting. But the thing that I think we should say if the Lord visits our disobedience, and if the Lord leads us this way to prove us, He leads thorns in our side to prove us. He teaches by our failure. This is one of the most wonderful things about the Lord. He toughens us, even by our own sins. This is the most amazing thing. He makes up men and women of war. Why did the Lord have this awful thing? Why did he not buy us? He did not. Partly because it was the only way to teach us. It was the only way to bring them to It was the only way he could prove them. And it was the only way he could stop them becoming soft. Says the chronicler here. He had to teach them to war. They did not know war. The other generation, now growing up, had forgotten what war was like. And they've got to learn what it so I think we together have to learn that uh, this is just how the Lord does lead us uh, in our ways. Um, some people seem to be so terribly upset when they've made a mistake of the smallest kind. They seem to think the Lord's going to cut them out altogether. But in actual fact, your mistakes are often woven into the Lord's way for you may not know it, but there is nothing, there is not a single thing in this whole universe, including Satan and including the whole of heaven, that can do anything to you but increase When we get hold of this, it changes everything. Even Satan can do nothing but bring more of Christ. Now, what am I talking about? Because this is not often true to experience. I mean this, that given a heart of the Lord, anything, and it if we have anything to do, which is ground, when they
standard of love that but when we fail, when we are defeated, such as happening in our heaven, if we have a heart, the Lord will give us When we view this history uh, through uh, um, a magnifying glass, we find that the Lord is just simply proving everything. He's bringing everything uh, under judgment, and he's exposing all the weakness that's in his people. When we take the overall from end to end, we find that the Lord is steadily working through the the Lord uses the very defeat and failure of the people to bring them into strong This I think we have to say. This is why Paul says in Corinthians, then there must need be factions and divisions amongst you, that those that are manifest, that those that are approved may be manifest. Factions and divisions can only bring out what is of God and can only expose what is not. In the same way, a thorn in the flesh, as Paul has, can only bring out the beauty and the loveliness and the strength of Christ in a believer. That's all it can do. If there's anything else, if we can be offended in the Lord by these things, we'll go under, and we shall be exposed as having uh, compromised, mixed motives in our hearts concerning the Lord. So let us learn simply from this that the Lord through these very things is teaching us to be men and women of war in the right way, hardly. You see then that this book has a lot to do with deliverance. It is a book of deliverance. Indeed, the Hebrew word which we have translated for us as judges is the word deliver or deliverance or saviour. Uh, it can be it can mean a magistrate in one sense, it can mean a ruler in another, it can be a deliverer or a saviour in another. Here then is the story of man's failure and over against it the salvation of God. Man's failure and God's deliverances all the way through. But it is a record of failure which is leading to deliverance. Every time failure leads to deliverance. The majority may fail, but it leads to those that will serve the Lord with their whole heart. And in every situation, the Lord has got his man. Whether it's a man that we know nothing about, like Shamgar, who slew so many with the uh, with an ox goat, or whether it is a man like Abdon that we know very little about, or whether it's a man like Jephthah who is a little foolish, or Samson who was so weak in many ways, or whether it's a man like Gideon who was so noble uh, and yet he failed. In all these cases, the Lord got his man, maybe his family, but he had his man. And these are those who really wanted to follow the Lord. You may know, you may not know but quite a number of those mentioned in this book are found in the record of those who do take over there. Samson is there, in spite of his life. Uh, Berak is there. Jephthah is there, in spite of his terrible mistakes. And uh, so we could go on. You'll find them, many of them are there. 
I want you also to note that the Lord takes the very defeat of his people and brings it to victory. Um, through this very, very means, uh, he instructs his people in the essentials for overcoming. I think we ought to recognize that and to see that in the midst of a, of a terrible story of decline and division, you have the beautiful story of this. This is just how the Lord always seems to work. Everything else may be corrupt and perverted, but here at the heart of it, there is one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. Absolutely sure. Crystal clear. In the very heart of his awful, awful history. So we find the Lord is working his sacrifice. May everything else around us not collapse. Everything else may have gone awry, but the Lord has got, as it were, his own one, on whom and in whom he is working and really moving through to the Another thing I want you to notice about this book is not only that it's failure and deliverance, but it is a book of causes and effects. Everything in this book is traced to a cause. Everything. And this is worked out in fine detail. Gideon, Gideon, forgive me that we've got to speak candidly tonight, Gideon took a concubine and had a sacrifice. This is just in one small phrase. A whole chapter is taken up with the effect. Abimelech. And the way that Abimelech destroys his 70 brothers. Destroys the lot. One small mistake after this And the effect is tremendous. A whole royal seed is there. A whole seed right there except for one man And we find in this book that all the way through it's cause and effect. Samson was a mighty man. We're told where his strength was. Then we're told how he let the creature down. How he lost the, the mark of his strength. And how he ended with his eyes put out. A very right in the nose throughout this book, in big things and in small things, cause and effect. The first chapter keeps on saying, and Zebulun drove not out the Canaanites, and Naphtali drove not out so and so, and um, Asher drove not out so and so. Then through the book we open it and we find that these people they didn't drive out have become now powerful, strong, in the midst of the people of God. And now they take over the people of God and overwhelm the people. So all the way through this book, cause and effect, everything is traced to a place. This can be tra- traced out in our spiritual life with the Lord. How the Lord continually is, is if, we are, if we are open to Him, tracing effect to cause. In our lives, we can find that. How often when someone collapses suddenly, or goes out suddenly, we'll find that there's a, a cause to which the Holy Spirit has got to take before we can get it out But the key to this book, in spite of all this about cause and effect and failure and deliverance, is something else. It's contained in the phrase that is repeated again and again in the appendix. It is not repeated in any other part of the book. 
But if you will turn with me to chapter 17, and verse 6, I uh, know, and verse 7, and then in chapter 19, verse 1, and it's verse 21 and verse 25. In those days there was no king in history. Every man did that which was right in his own heart. Now look at the end of the book, chapter 4 and verse 22. Oh, the Lord is here. 
think you want one after another. What is the key to the book of Judges? It is simply this, that when the authority of God is recognized and the people of God commit themselves to his authority, then there is stability and security. As soon as they fight authority, as soon as they rebel against authority, as soon as they defect or divide, everything stops at their The key to this book is this question of authority. By present, by present or by flesh. This is what Judges teaches us. It teaches us as much, as much by its lack as it does by its presence. When the authority of God is in a situation, it changes. When the authority of God is not there, everything goes to pieces. This is absolutely true. It doesn't matter where it is, where you find it. Uh, it is absolutely true. It is also interesting that the concept here chooses to say it's There may well have been others. But he chooses twelve judges in this book. And I don't think I need have to say anything more about that. So I think we have found here that the key to this book is government. Key to this book is a power. And not only now may I say, since I safeguarded it by saying we're not talking about flesh and blood, but we're talking about the authority of God, we have to take a step sooner or later from the authority of God Christ is heaven to the authority of Christ vested in human vessels on earth. This is a step that many people have are very unwilling. But it is there in the Word of God. And that is why the New Testament is summed up in so many things I could say then, but I could relate to it, and so on. We have to learn by the Word of God what the Word of God teaches very I think there is a lot there which we have to learn. Now, here uh, on the other side of this, I did um, write out something of a very simple outline of this book of Judges. You will see that it is really an exceedingly simple outline. It has an introduction of three chapters roughly, it has an appendix from chapter 1721 and possibly the book of Ruth as well. And then it just has the story of the deliverance of God in from Judges 3 uh, to Judges 16. Those chapters, those 13 chapters taken up with the deliverances of God. I want you to notice first about the introduction that there are three things if you look at it. First of all, it it tells us what Israel did not drive out. I think I've mentioned this quite a lot, there's no need to stress it anymore, except to say that this introduction is, as it were, the summary of this history. The key to it is simply, look, they did not drive these out. What they did not drive out became their defeat, their downfall. And this is always true of spiritual experience. Where we stop and settle down is the measure of our decision. We can never stop and settle down in the Christian life. If we dare to stop and settle down to things as they are, that's our decision. And sooner or later, if the devil takes 40, 50 years to do it, he'll undo it by where we stop. 
Some Christians will not find out, unfortunately, till they're in the floor. But the enemy has got them in his grip in this matter. They stopped And where they stopped was not only the measure of their defeat, the measure of their life, but it's the measure of their inheritance. So we have to recognize that. The second thing we have to recognize is this, the result. There was a result here. What was the result? The result was simply this. What they left in the land and did not drive out became within the source of temptation. Most of you must have had this experience. It is, I think, a comparatively easy thing to flee any youthful lust when it is from without. It is a comparatively easy thing, comparatively, to turn away from a temptation that is from without. It is one of the most difficult things in the world when there is ground inside which always opens the door, which has been carefully barred, or to the and welcomes them. This is ground inside which has to be dealt with. And you know there are two things here, the Balin and the Ashtaroth. Uh, Miss Ashtaroth is a very unusual plural of Asheroth. Asheroth, Asheroth, or um, Ashtaroth. <coughs> Baal was the male side, male deity. Asheroth was the female deity. And connected with these were the most like ancient and the most immoral form of worship. Consequently, for the people of God to actually join themselves and to start causing that Mount Hermon, Baal, and Gideon was called Jerobaal, and things like that all the time, begin to make you realize just how this evil spirit crept in and became so interwoven that amongst them, it was the most difficult thing amongst them to divide the two things. So that is Jehovah. That is Baal. These two things were always being brought together. We have to mention this because that is why the Lord is so much against the worship of Baal and the worship of, of Asherah. Just simply because um, the, um, the, of the terrible immorality that was associated with it. was not just idolatry, it was idolatry. So that is Jehovah. That is there. These two things were all being brought together. We have to re- mention this because that is why the Lord is so much against the worship of Baal and the worship of, of Asherah. Just simply because um, the, um, the, of the terrible immorality that was associated with it. It was not just idolatry. It was idolatry with a spirit. So let us remember that in all the, uh, the uh, history that we have in the Word of God of uh, uh, Baal and Asherah. In your authorized version, you have the word grove. That is not uh, the right word. For that word, always remember Asherah. <coughs> the female and remember what I've told you about her. 
So you see that uh, the result was that because those nations were not driven out, there was ground within. And whilst that may at the beginning have been strictly uh, avoided and excluded, sooner or later that ground was open. And from it the enemy worked to the breaking down of his people. And then again, I want you to notice that the Lord's reaction was simply to give the people over to this thing in order to cure them of it. This is always the Lord's reaction. Uh, when there's something we want badly, generally, if we will not let it go, he'll give us it. Because he uh, is big enough to give us much rope. And generally, we hang ourselves with the rope, and then in a right way, we come back to the Lord. So, you see, the Lord generally, always, his reaction is very well, the only way to cure is to let the whole thing come out and let them have a double uh, dose of it. Here in the book of Judges, you've got simply what the people wanted. They wanted to settle down, they didn't want to fight, and the Lord allowed them to do it. Now, what about the deliverances of God? This is just the introduction to these deliverances, but what about the deliverances? I think um, we can uh, pick out one or two and we'll just speak for a while about those one or two. Some of these judges you can see are passed over literally in a few verses and um, others are given a good deal more space. The first one that is given any real space is Deborah. Now this is very interesting for all the Christians that the first judge uh, should be a lady and should not only be a lady or a sister but that this sister should occupy such a place and a position nevertheless it's very interesting that in the account of those who through faith overcame we don't find Deborah instead we find Barak is mentioned Barak in the story is very secondary Deborah is first but when it comes to the Lord mentioning things he mentions Barak and forgets Deborah what is the key to this? You will find the key in the whole attitude of Deborah. Now, let me say just a few words, and I fear lest I be uh, murdered by the sisters uh, afterwards, um, that Deborah is far from being evident that ladies can do anything and everything, is the very testimony and illustration of the place that sisters have in the economy of God. Here is a woman, because there was no man, who could be taken up by God and given one of the greatest places in her day and generation that anyone, even a man, could be given. Yet, if you read carefully the story, she refuses to usurp authority once. When Barak said to her, you leave young, she said, I will not, you go. He said, I will not go unless you come. She said, I will come, but you go. <coughs> you go first, I'll come. And you read through the story and you find that Deborah all the time is behind Barak. She goes to him, she's up, Barak, for this day the Lord has given them into your hand. But she doesn't say, Barak, come with me. The Lord has given them into my hand. She says, Barak, the Lord's given them into your hand. 
You go up there, and I am with you. You see, there is something that the scripture calls modest, and you understand this word, for it's in the scripture, shamefaced, about Deborah, which was absolutely human and benign. So that this woman could become the prophetess of Israel and called the mother. And yet there's nothing about it that is the least bit unbecoming or ugly. When I read the story, it seems to be perfectly in keeping. I don't get that awful feeling that evidently some uh, brothers have, that this is surely something that uh, shouldn't really be in the uh, Bible at all. Uh, it's presented us with a lot of problems. There is something absolutely becoming about the place of Deborah in the story. She was with Berah, she was behind Berah, and I believe that in Hebrew 11 she's included in the triumph of Berah. Berah could never have done what he did or get where he got if it hadn't been for Deborah. But Deborah refused to take anything to herself. All the time she passed it over to Berah. This is a question of authority. This is the key to the book of Judges. Deborah shows us the place of sister in God's economy. A great place, a big place, an influential place, an effective place, and yet a place which is not the least bit uh, brazen and cheap and out of order. Let us take note then of that. Then we come to Gideon. And what do we find about Gideon? When we come to Gideon from chapter 6 to chapter 9, uh, we find some rather wonderful things I'm going to mention to you because uh, quite a bit of the record is given over to this one judge. We are first of all given the character of leadership. And the character of leadership we find from verse 11 of chapter 6 um, to verse 24. What do we find about leadership? What is the character of leadership? First of all, you will notice this, that long before Gideon was called, he was obviously a conscientious person. He was not a person who only sat around and uh, you know, waited. Uh, he was obviously a very, very hard-working, conscientious, efficient type of fellow. And we find that even when the angel of the Lord came to him, he found him hard at work. And then the second thing you'll notice about Gideon is not only that he was a man, obviously, of real conscientiousness and hard work, but you will also find that he was a very humble um, evidently what his hand found to do, he did it with all his might. I believe the Lord always looks for people, looks for people like that, who if they're given the smallest job to do, put all their strength and energy into it. This was the kind of man Gideon was. It is one of the characteristics of real leadership, that you can do a small thing as fully, as energetically, as zealously, as devotedly, as you would do a big thing. This is one of the things the Lord looks for in leadership. And he looks for humility, a preparedness to be nothing. 
uh, Gideon wasn't the least bit uh, uh, swell-headed. He didn't think that he was anything. He thought he was the least, and uh, his father's family was the least in Manasseh, and he himself was nothing. Why should the Lord choose him? And I want you also to notice that it was not only humility, I noticed that he offered a burnt offering. And this is the essential character of the If you are prepared to be consumed, if you are prepared to be offered on the altar every single bit to be utterly consumed, then you are in God's sight. Whether you be a brother or whether you be a sister. This is the thing that holds so many back a terrible sense of self preservation. Fear. No, this can never, never come into leadership. Leadership is, is illustrated by the burnt offering. Something wholly burnt. Something wholly consumed. So you see, you've got something there, you've got the character of leadership. Then I want you to notice something else about him from verse, 20, from verse 26 to verse 32. You will find his utterance. He did a thing which would put a cost in his life. He cut down the altar of Baal and destroyed it. This was his father's altar, and it was the altar of the town. And the, as it were, the place of worship. And he destroyed the whole thing. This showed his utterance. He could not do it by day, so he did it by night. But the point about Gideon was that he was utter. Absolutely wholeheartedly to the Lord. The next thing I want you to notice about is the confirmation of his call. What does this mean? First he says, Lord, I'll put a fleece out tonight. If the fleece is full of dew and the ground all around is dry, I will know you uh, have spoken to me. The Lord did it. Then he said, now, Lord, the next night I shall put out a fleece and I want you to let it be absolutely bone dry and all the ground full of dew. What does this speak about? It speaks again of the character of leadership. First of all, when everything else around us is absolutely barren and bone dry, the Lord would have us full of heavenly dew, full of life, full of the water of life, full of it, absolutely full. This is leadership. When everyone else dying dust. The leadership has got something to give. Something inward. Something that cannot be, you cannot put your finger on, but it's there. It's got it. But the other side is the power. Leadership is always, has a great sense of being bone dry. And everything round about has got the better. First, you fill the fleece with dew, then you get the dew out of it, and everything else benefits. This is the paradox. Life, death in us, life in you. Always bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus, the life also may be manifested. What is the next thing? Death worketh in us, life in you. So this is the character of, of leadership, according to God. That we should draw and learn how to draw on God so that we've got life inside when everything else is barren. And then to know what it is to walk by faith so that when we feel as bone dry as bone dry can be, everything else can know the benefit 
of our walk with God. This must always be the character of divine leadership. Then I want you all to notice in chapter 7 the character of corporate pioneering. Personal leadership to corporate pioneering or corporate leadership. What do we find in chapter 7 from 4 to 8? We find, first of all, they're, el- they're eliminated from 32,300. How, Judge First of all, he says, now look here, all of you. The Lord says to him, tell them all, all those of you who want to go, <coughs> you can go. I've often wondered what would happen if we did that. Very well. Those of you who don't want to go on, you may go. You want your homes, you want your careers, you want your happiness, you want your own life, you go. Leave us to it. And a very large number went. Then the Lord said to him, there are far too many. Take them down to the river. When they come to the river, watch how they drink. Those that get down and lap up the water with their tongue, they're not to be taken. Those that scoop it up and drink it, take them. What was the thing? What is this character in corporate pioneering the Lord's looking for? A, a, a corporate watchfulness. It would have been the easiest thing, you see, if the whole lot of us in this front row were all getting down to the water for me to say, well, look here, all of you, there, watch. And now I find it a bit difficult. I'd rather get right down to it and drink. As someone has pointed out, it's rather selfish of those who had their full, uh, put their faces almost into it. They were thirsty, they, they drank full. But it's very easy in a company to think, well, so-and-so will watch. I don't have to bound to. In all this crowd here, goodness gracious, if an enemy comes, they'll tell us in no time. That's the kind of thing the Lord says cannot be in corporate power. Every single one has got to have such a watchfulness and a care over one another that not one of them would dare do it even if there were 30,000. They would all be on, as we say, all be on the key lead. All on the watch, all waiting, all alert. This is a characteristic of corporate pioneering. And then what are the other essential things of victory? If in corporate pioneering we're to know victory, there are three essential things. First, there must be a trumpet. Secondly, there must be a pitcher. And thirdly, there must be a torch, which is a light. But I have left out the most important thing. The pitcher must be broken. Gideon told them that they were all to take a trumpet, they were to take their pitchers, they were to put the torches inside of them. Then at a given signal, they were to blow the trumpet, smash the, the pitcher, pick up the torch, and shout. What does this speak of? It speaks of this in corporate pioneering. An absolute obedience to the word of God, to the voice of God. A preparedness to be utterly shattered in living together. And I might say that it is one another that shatters. There are very few people who shatter themselves. It's brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so that shatter me. And that is the way it happens. That the light inside can be seen. This is always the way to victory in corporate pioneering. If we are pioneering a way, this is the way. We must be absolutely alert to the, for the voice of God and prepared to sound it out without fear. We must be prepared to be shattered that the light inside 
take it out. This then is really simply the message.